0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Thrill of the Hill. My name is Alec Petty, and this is the Farm Advisory Service series where we discuss the hot topics impacting the farmed upland environment. In today's episode of Thrill of the Hill, I'm joined by Ross Macleod, Head of Policy in Scotland for the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust, and we discuss the outlook for the game bird sector in Scotland, the challenges of balancing commercial interests with nature outcomes why gamekeeping and predator control are so important, and what the future holds for the uplands, and how the farming sector can support it for mutual benefit. Hi there, Ross. How are you doing?
1: I'm great, thanks, Alex. It's good to catch up with you.
0: Yeah, no, thanks very much for coming on through the Hill today. I'm really excited about this podcast. It's been a long time we've been, we've been planning it, and uh, excited to have you on.
1: Great. Well, I'd love to, to get the opportunity to have a chat with you.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Ross, can we just get kicked off with a bit of an introduction to who you are and your job role within the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, well, first of all, the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust is uh, a research and education charity. Uh, we've been in existence for over 80 years now. Um, we employ around 25 postdoctoral researchers and about 50 other scientists, and we maintain the longest-running monitoring project in the world measuring impact of changes in farming on fauna and flora uh, of arable land, that's called the Sussex Study. And although many people probably come across us in terms of the research of game and wildlife species, we actually run two demonstration farms as well, one in England and one in Scotland. Um, they're both quite different in in characteristics. Our um, farm in England at the Allerton project is essentially an arable farm, and our operation in Scotland is a, a livestock, a sheep enterprise in Aberdeenshire. And in both cases, they're broadly researching relationships between agricultural production, greenhouse gas emissions, soil health. Uh, water management and biodiversity, but I guess um, we're most known for our uh, our work in the research around conservation of game and wildlife species. Um, I mean, as far as my role is concerned, I'm involved with policy work, um, and it's been a pretty busy twelve months over the last year with Scottish government consultations on um, biodiversity, on land reform in a net zero nation, the agricultural bill, of course, and. Uh, wildlife management um, grouse with um, licensing provisions coming up on that. And uh, I guess my principal involvement is to help inform government policy direction based on our research, Uh, but also recognize that um, our work has to reflect policy decisions taken by Scottish government uh, and in turn embed that in in our research and advisory avenues and and generally, that's that's evolved into a, an approach we call best practice with proof, with evidence gathering to demonstrate sound management. So in, in particular, a lot of attention has gone into recording via apps, so that we're using mobile app technology increasingly to enable land managers to, to, to gather information as an audit trail and to use information for any update on on land management activity. So as far as I'm concerned, my role is basically sitting in the middle between advisory and research colleagues taking information from both directions and trying to get that into sound policy.
0: And it sounds like you've got an awful lot on your plate. Uh, You've just outlined a couple of really interesting um, policy developments and and we are hearing an awful lot about what Scottish government want to see in terms of land management in Scotland going forward. So uh, no doubt a really busy time for you guys
1: yeah absolutely um but i think i think we need to see everything um in the same way that that scottish government is seeing things with um, climate change and biodiversity loss at the heart of everything so whatever we can do to to reflect that is is going to be really important <clears throat> So Ross, um, here on Thrill of the Hill,
0: we discuss the issues around the farmed upland environment and we've never had somebody on from what I would call the game bird sector in in Scotland. Um, And I did feel that you know, it's agriculture adjacent. It no doubt has a huge role to play in the farmed upland environment. And I just wanted to get your perspective on how is the game bird sector in, in Scotland and what's the role of these large landowners and estates in enhancing Scotland for biodiversity and climate change?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, I think that the, the main angle that we come at this at the moment is is so again thinking about the climate change issues is that <clears throat> if we really want to tackle things at landscape scale um then and we want to do it quickly um then it's important to uh, embrace the scale that's represented by by upland uh, estates and see what we can do to harness good practice quickly um if we're going to tackle climate change so i think that's important that um, uh, and we've we've Made that point in our submissions to uh, Scottish Government through the consultation processes on both agriculture and more recently in terms of the, the sort of grouse licensing approach that we, we we need to do things at scale, and that gets things um, done that much more quickly. We would hope, and that's not to that's not to say that the issues around community engagement aren't important, but it's just to to make that point. There's an opportunity here. Um, that we all ought to embrace. So we, it's, it's about working collaboratively in that respect. So we do see that as very important. Um, and I think also um, we're beginning to see some of the signs of climate change affecting uh, estates, both large and small. So it's, it's important, again, that we, we track the evidence of that. And that's that's really what we're trying to do with some of the, the mobile app technology uh, and make sure that we can we can get some information flowing to and from um, uh, Scottish government as 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 quickly as we can really
0: and if you don't mind me asking Ross wh- what is the outlook like for your sector in Scotland right now how are people um, how are people managing
1: yeah such it's, it's challenging all around I have to say I mean, if if we're thinking about uh, sort of released game birds like pheasants and partridges um, the, the scenery has been significantly affected by COVID, first of all, which restricted a lot of, uh, of shooting activity. And, and more recently, of course, avian flu has had a significant impact. And so for those different reasons over the last three years, the, 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 the situation has been generally quite quite tough. Um, and even if the amount of pheasant rearing and releasing in Scotland has been considerably less than in other parts of the UK, I do think we're at something of a watershed up here in Scotland Um, but I think broadly the sector understands that it needs to face up to the challenges of of climate change and biodiversity loss so I think that will have huge influence over what happens. Um, But I think in particular there are uh, are arguments that the sector already delivers biodiversity net gain in some respects but as I said before it needs to demonstrate that it does do that. Uh, and again, that brings us back to the the best practice with proof initiative I mentioned at the start. Um, the, the, the the situation with with grouse management is, is is challenging. Over the last five years, there've been quite significant poor breeding seasons, um, coupled with with hard weather in May, and that's made it very challenging for uh, keepers and land managers to to. To, to look after the stock and provide a, a surplus sufficient for for shooting. So there's not been much activity on that front as well. But of course, we need to keep looking after the the, the habitat as best we can. And there's lots of discussion about that that have come through on the the discussions with um, with Scottish government about the licensing process, particularly in in terms of muirburn management.
0: And Ross, when we're discussing the game bird sector in Scotland, what what Bird species, are we covering really? I mean, there'll be pheasant and grouse, like you say, but are there any other species that that I'm maybe missing that we should be considering is also important?
1: Um, yeah, of course. the the, the red grouse probably probably dominates in in Scotland compared to our, our colleagues working in England, um, where there's more more releasing activity. So, um, the upland activities is is, is probably front and center of most of our work. Um, so yeah, red grouse, pheasants, um, and partridges, both um, uh, their original uh, native gray partridge in parts of eastern Scotland, but also releasing of, of red leg partridges. Um, but in all of those cases, really, the, the the binding logic to to our work, as far as research and advice is concerned, is built around um, a principle that we observed in the, the, the Sussex study I mentioned earlier, and that's about what we describe as a three-legged stool um, that's habitat food supply and predator control so that if you remove one of those legs the, the stool starts to collapse so you need all three in combination to work well um, and i think the good thing as far as biodiversity net gain is concerned is that these three legs also support general bird conservation um you know and that's something that continues to be reflected in our research work whether that's for Songbirds for in in the farm landscape or, or wading birds in upland environments, um, and certainly at this time of year, it's particularly critical to maintain a food supply through what we would describe as the the hungry gap from the end of the year through to the spring. Um, so those are the main uh, species we work with, but of course there's all sorts of uh, of other species that um, may have been game birds at one time but are, are taken off the quarry list or under or under sort of scrutiny. Um, because of their status. So we've got capercaillie, for instance, black grouse, um, uh, uh, and other small wading birds like woodcock and and snipe that we have particular interest in understanding more about. So those are the the main species that we, we principally work with.
0: And how does management differ between birds that are reared and released versus wild fowl in
1: Scotland? Yeah, I think the, the the principal difference is um, is re- is really one of the habitat into which they're introduced. So, <clears throat> as far as the the released birds are concerned, uh, we're trying to make sure that um, management is also catalyst for for habitat and species conservation. So, generally speaking, you've got a driver for investment in habitat such as woodland hedges. Um, the, the availability of additional feed and, and also wild bird seed and game and unharvested crops. Um, so in that respect, you can get the sort of close interaction between um, farmers and woodland managers. So at its best, we, we would hope that it's a, a holistic approach. Um, and as far as moorland management is concerned, we're obviously dealing with bred with grouse. So, in terms of, uh, of, of red grouse, um, it's obviously a wild bird species. So, um, it's um, uh, the, the species gathering uh, its food crop from from the natural habitat around it. So, the way in which we work with with, with heather um, is, is is the main important ingredient, I think. Um, and that's also important because moorland management remains uh, an important part of a, a globally rare how the habitat conservation work that goes on. So uh, again, it's really that important relationship between keepers and shepherds and farmers um, and points to another important factor in terms of the sort of upland management, which is that sort of local cohesion and employment as part of the rural economy.
0: And how many gamekeepers would you say are present in Scotland and, and working today?
1: Gosh, I think off the top of my head, that's about 2,000 full-time um, and probably more in part-time, but I think it's, it's round about that figure. How that's split between Upland and, and low ground, I'm not sure. I think the the, the bulk will be in, uh, in, in the Upland uh, setting.
0: And would it be fair to say that that number is about right or would you like to see that number increase? I mean... How is the sector managing are are they at capacity
1: uh, that's a really good question i I'm, I'm not sure I know the answer to that one particularly, but I, one thing that I would reflect on is that uh, in the past um, a lot of farmers would have undertaken some kind of predator control, but increasingly with the the, the, the busy activities of managing all aspects of the farm. Sometimes I, I think predator control has, has, has been the one that they've, they've dropped. Um, so it would be nice to think that we could, up, in some ways, push um, predator control um, by professional keepers back down the hill into into farmland. And I think that might benefit uh, wading birds in particular. Um, you know, it's not a criticism at all of farmers. I think it's just a reflection of the busyness of their lives now. Um, but that might be one area that I could see an area for expansion of, of some aspects of keepering.
0: Do you know that that's been a common comment? Um, by a number of, of uh, guests on the podcast, predator control is one of these hot button topics that we keep coming back to. It doesn't really matter whether you're discussing the uplands or you're discussing management for waders or, or another particular species. Um, it does seem to be one of these topics that, that everybody kind of agrees that we need to see more of
1: yeah um and in particular uh we contribute to a project called working for waders which um a number of organizations including sruc are involved this and, and in fact um the co-chair is professor david mccracken um so that that that's really important that we we, we keep that sort of activity going that that cross cross-sectoral support for each other going uh and i I hope that that will continue to, to to bear fruit.
0: We've actually had working for Waiters and uh, and Professor Davy McCracken on the podcast before, so I'm, I'm sure they'll be glad to to, to hear that. Um, hoping to do more with them going into into this year as well, so uh, watch this space. Ross, can I just ask, can you discuss a little bit around the heritage aspects of gamekeeping um, and some of the cultural things that maybe people aren't uh, aren't too aware of?
1: Yeah, um, I think pretty much... Um, well, we would see, the Trust would see them as, as, as really the custodians of that three-legged stool we talked about earlier, you know, Habitat predator control, provision of food. Um, But I think it's much more than that, of course, and and particularly in Scotland, because they're such an important part of rural communities when perhaps other components of local or or village life have been somewhat hollowed out as as people have migrated into towns and cities. Uh, I think the other thing which is becoming really important going forward is there's a huge amount of natural history insight and observation stored in Keeper's Heads, uh, and that, certainly as far as research is concerned, we, we, we do well to remember. Um, I think equally the profession itself recognizes the, the, the need to evolve, um, and I've seen that most particularly uh, in the willingness to record the information in a way that they can use to demonstrate the outputs from what they do. Um, again, it, this comes back to the best practice with proof initiative I mentioned earlier. Um, so in some ways, the, the, their situation in terms of um, providing information for outcomes policy in the future is no different to, to farmers being asked to show efficient food production alongside biodiversity stewardship. So it's that balance between that, that sort of citizen science knowledge that they've always had and they've built up over generations, which is becoming really important, um, which we need to capture in whatever way we can, coupled with um, as we say the the collection of, of information that, that might be necessary for for instance combating or understanding the issues around climate change. So that I I think it's an interesting stage for uh, the keepering professions at, you know, borrowing from the past traditions, but thinking about new ways in which they can they can really underpin the value of the work they do.
0: And do you get the sense that your sector is enthusiastic or excited about the direction of policy in Scotland? I mean, are there any challenges that you see on the horizon?
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, I think, I think all of us in the, in the sort of rural management are confronted with significant change um, resulting from climate issues and biodiversity loss.
0: <clears throat> um,
1: um, and there's no doubt that's unsettling. Um, but I, I think I, I certainly take heart from the fact that um, you know we've got lots and lots of keepers uh, willing to 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 record information because they're keen to show that they're they're doing the right thing. Um, and I think that paves the way for the future for you know productive way for the future for all of us in in, in that respect. And I think we've we've got to learn to be to use that information constructively to um, to understand what's happening and and react to that change. Uh, as best we can and as quickly as we can. So, yeah, really important that um, we don't lose the, the sort of cultural history and the, 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 the community benefits of, of, of Keepering, but also just harnessing the things we need to do for the future.
0: You've talked a little bit, Ross, about the actions that the sector are taking for biodiversity enhancement. And obviously, the game sector plays an important role in the uplands. Uh, One of the things that you did touch on earlier that that I wanted to go back to was Muirburn. Um, Where where do you see... Muirburn going in Scotland? There's obviously a lot of discussion right now about whether or not we should be encouraging Muirburn, whether or not it's effective, whether or not it's exasperating the carbon issue that, that we've got with climate change. Um, do you have a particular stance on on the issue?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's occupying a lot of our time at the moment. Um, Particularly because um, there are significant evidence gaps. I think everyone everyone would acknowledge that. And I think even recently, the recent Nature Scott review of all the evidence suggested that we've we've got large gaps. And I can understand the the, the Scottish government's approach to saying, well, in the evidence, with with these evidence gaps, we ought to take a precaution, precautionary approach to matters. Um, but I think where we differ from that is in our, our, our interpretation of what a precautionary approach really means. Um, and it looks like the, the, the dialogue with Scottish Government so far would indicate that they they were looking to apply a general restriction on burning in areas where the peat depth is is greater than 40 centimetres. Um, and obviously the logic for that is that it will prevent significant emission uh, of of carbon stored in the peat. Um, I think where, where we differ on that is that um, what we're all aiming to do with with heather management, with mu Muir, burn management, is is manage the fuel load above ground. There is no intention to try and burn peat at all. So I think the the way that the sector would like to approach this is is really to say that why don't we make it illegal to burn into the peat, into the ground itself. Um, because, as I say, we're trying to manage the, the fuel load above ground, um, the woody heather that grows after a, a period of time, and that's what we're really looking to to control. Um, and so in, in in legislative aspects, really, it may be more sensible to, to make it illegal to burn into the peat and, and say that what we're trying to do is burn that above ground uh, woody heather. Um, there's a, there are a couple of reasons for that, really, one of which is that... Um, where well, we can um, burn back the old heather and create that sort of mosaic of different habitats, you actually allow more light to the ground, which um, in in where it works well it means that the sphagnum is, is growing in content for a period of time before the heather starts to dominate again. And it's the sphagnum that's laying down the, 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 the peat layer, if you like, for the future. So we get that balance between muir burn um, and um, carbon sequestration right. Um, then there's lots of possibilities there, but it's a question of seeing if we can persuade Scottish government um, that that is the case. The other consideration I think we, we need to bear in mind is that um, there's the risk of wildfire, um, and this comes back to um, the issue of climate change again. Um, so lots of considerations there that we need to think about. And um, one of the things that does challenge me on uh, challenge my thinking on that is is whether our traditional forms of Muirburn management, uh, which is largely about trying to create that mosaic of habitat, um, is also exactly the same requirement as we would need for wildfire management. I think we need to experiment and understand that um, a little bit more. Um, But I think our concern is that if you start legislating in a way which is a blanket restriction, it actually makes it really difficult to uh, change the legislation in future if, if we detect a problem, um, you know, particularly in something as emotive as, as burning habitat. And uh, you can understand why people would get upset about that, um, who are less acquainted with some of the sort of research and, and scientific evidence. Um, and that, you know, as I say, that can make it really difficult to to row back from that situation so what we've been suggesting is is really um working with keepers to make sure that we um we map out the environment they're planning they're planning to burn on we look at the areas where we should be making some sensible decisions about where to burn and where not to burn Um, we map that out Um, we set a plan around that um, we liaise in future with Nature Scott to make sure that they're, they're comfortable with the plan that's been developed for, for that licensing purpose. Um, but then we enable the keepers to record where they're burning, um, which helps to show their compliance with plan. But it's also providing the, the necessary information for everyone to, to research in future to, to decide where uh, and, and, and how it's, it's best managed. Um, but as I say, if we start to cut off things through blanket restrictions, we then don't have the the, the means to 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 look at the evidence to understand where and when where we shouldn't be doing things. So I think quite a bit to work on there. It's what we would call an adaptive management approach, but it's really based on the evidence and the science that we can we can gather. and we think that would be a more intelligent way of addressing climate change and habitat and biodiversity loss than simply just restricting things. I think the other thing about restricting things, um, as has been suggested, is that actually you're not encouraging people to do any recording of evidence. Um, so we'd lose that opportunity. Um, so I think it's, it, it, it's about using any change in the legislation intelligently so that we can flex both for restricting where it's sensible, but also allowing the possibility for um, looking to the future and evidence gathering.
0: and um, ju- just on it you-, you mentioned Nature Scott there you'll be aware I'm sure that the Agri-Environment Climate Scheme has has relaunched um, and people um, across Scotland can apply for, for funding now as, as we're recording the option or the, the capital support for Muirburn and heather swiping has been removed in this funding round presumably just listening to to what you've set out there, that's kind of a backward step.
1: Yes, we do feel that's a bit of a a, a backward step. Um, and we have we have written to the Scottish government about this to to express our concern. um and clearly, we wait to see how the, uh, the bill for wildlife management grouse is, is put before parliament. Um, so it may be that we all get a, an, another look at this in due course. But on the face of it, yes, it's a, it's a concern that it's, it's been taken out of the equation. And similarly, the the way in which bracken um, management has been removed as well, because um, yeah, we're a bit concerned about that, particularly in terms of of, of habitat loss and issues around disease control with with tick are becoming an increasing problem with with climate change as well.
0: I was just going to ask, what what do you think the dangers are of removing that level of support? So I, I think you kind of covered that there, though, with regards to undertaking muir burn or, or indeed heather swiping or bracken control. Can you explain to me how conflicts in land management are avoided following that? And and what I mean is, are we undertaking muir burn purely for the benefit of, of the game bird sector? Or is, is there common ground to be had, kind of mutual benefits between biodiversity, net gain, climate change, and you know have a having a thriving sector for you guys?
1: Uh, yeah, I think that, that there's a sweet spot to be found between all of those components. Um, as I mentioned, I think the, the, the real concern is that we may struggle to find that sweet spot if we simply close off things with a blanket restriction on on Muirburn. So the opportunity to understand um, where and how Muirburn burn can contribute to carbon sequestration or, or lessen it, um, how we can manage for wildfire, um, you know, particularly when you know, Scottish Fire and Rescue Service are particularly concerned about the threat of wildfire. Um, more so from the point of view that if they've got to provide resource for management of, of, of wildfire, it's dragging resource away from some other, of their activity maybe it's around domestic or, or commercial buildings fires that they need to watch out for so I think they're pretty concerned about that um, but I I guess my main concern would be as I say if we if we shut off if we make things uh, so restricted that we don't really have the opportunity to, to research and ref, uh, and react to to change and, and and the evidence that we're seeing then it's, it becomes quite a problem to to manage in the future, so lots of lots of opportunity, but 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 challenging if we can't get past this hurdle of of how we collect data and evidence um, in the future.
0: In terms of predator control, how much is predation an issue for the game bird sector, and what level of activity would you like farmers to engage in um, that you think could conceivably make an impact?
1: Yeah. I- I think the it's trying to make sure that in in managing for, for for game birds um that we can demonstrate a benefit for other forms of uh, uh, other species like farmland birds like wading birds as well I know there's some concerns been expressed at you know particularly down south where some of the releasing is at a scale which is quite different to to Scotland that there may be that may be drawing in predators. Um, uh, I'm less convinced about that because I think we need to tease out the, the problems of, of food waste and, and urban growth as well, which seems to be contributing to the, the number of, for instance, foxes down down in, in some parts of England. Um, but in, in Scotland, the, the, the population of, of foxes, say, in particular, seems to be relatively stable be growing in the urban environment um, but clearly we need to keep on top of that uh, both for for farm reasons for for livestock and you know, particularly around lambing um, particularly around um, breeding birds in the in spring and early summer and that's really where we need to be focusing our efforts um, but I think uh, uh, some of the challenges are that uh, elements of predator control are being picked away at um, for instance, we've just seen the hunting with dogs bill, uh, which is restricting the use of dogs to to flush foxes from, from deep cover like um, commercial forestry or or bracken beds or gorse. Um, but it, it, it's it's good that there is a, a license provision which will allow some flexibility for, for management in those kind of environments. Um, but we're also seeing questions around um, the use of of snares. Um, and I think our our view would be we need to keep um, all the tools in the box for different situations. I think those who who would oppose, say, the use of, of snares um, would like to say that you could deliver all of the predator management by shooting. Um, but that's really not realistic in some situations, particularly in in hilly or or or, or ground where you've got lots of, of dead spots where it's difficult to see a, a fox come through. Um and sometimes where the vegetation is so dense that it's it's impossible to shoot. And even with technology like, you know, um nighttime vision, etc., it, it takes a bit of moisture to disrupt um that activity. So it may not always be difficult. So we would like to suggest that um, the, that you need to keep um, a, a variety of tools in the box for different situations. Um, yeah, there's been a lot of concern about um, the, whether the use of snares is, is inhumane. I think the technology, which has been improved dramatically and the training has been improved dramatically since the, the introduction of new legislation under the Wildlife and Natural Environment Act in Scotland, which makes the um, deployment of, of, of snares um, much more regulated and controlled than it used to be. That's not to say there aren't problems. Uh, of course, there are occasional problems. Um, and we think that's more to do with um, um, people having a go at problems with their gardens, you know, with a, um, some, some animal and maybe it's a cat uh, getting at birds or something, it's the it's the... The unprofessional use of, of of snares. I think the other important thing to say is, is I mentioned the technology of snares um, earlier, and we've moved on quite considerably. Um, our, our colleagues who undertake predator control research down south have perfected what we call uh, humane cable restraint, um, which has a, a breakaway component built into it. Now, so that if an animal heavier than a fox gets into a snare, um, it can actually pop that, that unit open, so like a badger or a deer can can pull the snare and break it and get away. And the introduction of stops has meant that um, hairs can back out of, of um, the cable restraints now. Um, so what I think we would propose going forward is, to, you know, there are all sorts of questions about the use of, of the old-fashioned snare right across the UK at the moment, but we would like to suggest that we we, we ban the old snare. And we only use humane cable restraints with breakaways in the future. Um, but alongside that, that we, we monitor, um, we ask the keepers to keep um, records, for instance, using mobile technology again, the app technology we've been perfecting, so that they have a record. Um, and again, they can demonstrate compliance, but also we can point to the evidence of, of, of benefit from Fox Control. Um, both for game birds and for 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 wading and, and farmland birds as well. So I think that's the way we would like to steer things to make sure that we've got some options over predator control. Um, but we we make sure that we represent um, the the really important aspects around being able to conserve not just game birds but the 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 wild birds, the wading birds particularly, which have suffered so much in um, the last 20 thirty years I mean, we've seen curlews in Scotland and the UK decline by 60 percent and, and often it's uh, it's predator control that provides the, the, the immediate boost rather than changes in habitat which take an awfully long time to come to fruition. Um, and we you know trying to get um, for instance uh, a change in policy on on, on farmland, back to some some of the, you know, the this kind of rotations we might've seen in the past, um, which might might aid curlew, blackwings, oyster catchers, could be years or decades in the making. Um, and in that kind of environment, we therefore need a short-term option, which is around all the predator control that we, we, we require. So I hope that provides a, a picture of, of whether the trust sees the benefit of predator control.
0: Uh, yes, that, that that's great. No, thanks. Thanks very much. One of the other topics that I wanted to hit with you was on deer control. Now, there is, there is this kind of growing narrative that there are too many deer in Scotland and that we need to see deer numbers come down in order for the upland environment to, to really thrive. I just wanted to get your perspective on whether or not we need more deer control in Scotland and what the potential impacts could be for the game bird sector.
1: Uh, yeah, it's well, perhaps surprisingly for for GWCT deer deer research is is not something we have a significant depth of experience in. Though you know, inevitably there are areas of work where there are crossovers, and those mostly relate to habitat and disease management, particularly around tick transmission. Um, I mean, I guess the 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 real issue is is around um, the need for trees to combat climate change—I I suppose that's the real driving force—and um, and therefore the need to, to, to manage the population of red deer more more effectively. I, you know, that seems to be the, the, the real crunch point at the moment. I mean, I know there's lots of argument about um, generally that the deer population is sort of much bigger than it, it used to be. It's as I say, it's not our area of expertise particularly, but. Um, um, clearly, I think the main point of conflict is, is managing the impact on growing woodland. Um, so I think, I guess we, we all have to roll with the punches on that one, decide, you know, is climate change such an important issue that we really need to get on top of that? And I, I guess the answer has to be yes. Um, as I say, though, it's, it's not an area where we're heavily involved in at all. But um, I guess from my point of view, looking at it from one step removed, um, the open range, the upland deer management groups have developed sensible plans to work towards that balance. And I sometimes wonder whether actually a more significant problem at present is the burgeoning number of, of, of roe deer on low ground um, in farms and woodland. And, and perhaps the challenge there is 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 more acute because the land ownership is more fragmented and that makes it more difficult to establish a, a landscape scale management approach. Um, and perhaps that's an area where a cluster approach needs to be developed, with you know, plans agreed between farmers to manage collectively, uh, in, in exactly the same way as it happens in in uplands areas, upland areas, except at, at much larger scale. So, I think that's how I'd re- reflect on it. I think we clearly, if we're putting climate change at the top of the agenda, then we need to control deer. Um, but I think that, that there'll always be a case for managing deer in the right place, the right location, um, where it can benefit trees and, uh, and, and maybe given the open ground where it's, it's, it's more appropriate for them.
0: And in terms of game bird conservation, Ross, does the drive to see more trees in Scotland, whether or not they're planted or it's natural regeneration, does that present issues for game bird conservation?
1: Um, well, it, it certainly does in terms of, of red grouse management, because obviously the um, loss of heather habitat to, to, to woodland would obviously present a challenge. Um, and we've seen that historically in the past where um, commercial woodland planting has been encouraged in you know the 50s and 60s, last century, where we saw loss of heather habitat. Uh, I think... Where we would see some, some some middle ground would be for um, sensible planting of of um, what we call cluchs and and um, the valley edges running up to moorland, where I think um, you can create habitat sensibly for different species. You can encourage the sort of native native plants to native trees to to re-establish. I think that might be one one way to do it, but I think. Again, we need to bear in mind that just simply planting trees in uplands is not always going to work on on mineral soils. And you may actually have a a worse result because it's drawing moisture up and and actually reducing some of the benefits of carbon sequestration. So, again, a lot of work to be done to understand really what we mean by the right tree in the right place situation. I think there are some options to say, you know, the, the, the sort of riparian Woodland and streams running up into hill edge, I think there's some practical options there perhaps. Um, and as far as the, the low ground is concerned, the planting of woodland, um, well, in many ways, game management has been a catalyst for planting of, of hedgerows and trees in, on farmland in in certain respects. So, again, it's... It, would see opportunities there, I guess, for to make sure that we've got intelligent management of habitat alongside an opportunity for game management. And if that also produces a, a sequestration benefit, then even better. I think, of course, as, as the more that we plant woodland, the more we're actually ex- expanding the reach of predators. So something we've also got to bear in mind as well. You know, Crows and foxes have uh, extended habitat as a, as a result of woodland. So it's something we're all going to have to get um, thinking about.
0: And uh, Ross, one of the, the key things that I've taken out from listening to you this afternoon has been you know, you've gone back to, to data and the need to record activities and, and to, to flesh out um, some of the narrative behind some of the activities that you guys are undertaking in the uplands. Do you think there's a disconnect between yourselves and the general public, yourselves and, and Scottish government? Who Who is it that needs to have a better understanding of what activities are actually being undertaken?
1: Um. Gosh, all, all all stakeholders involved in um, in in the rural management sector need to have a handle on, on evidence. I think all of us would would probably hold our hands up and say there are evidence gaps, um, and um, in some cases we might not be collecting the right kind of evidence either. So, um, trying to come up with intelligent ways in which we can all contribute to that discussion would be would be sensible. I mean, there should be more that, that joins us than, than divides us on this whole issue of, of, of rural management. And um, I think for me, the glue would be um, unbiased evidence. So the more that we can put into play in that regard, I think it's, it's got to be the way ahead.
0: And Ross, what actions could the farming community take to support the the game bird sector, the farmed upland environment? What what actions would you like to see happening at farm level that you think would have particular benefits that you'd be interested um, in pursuing?
1: That's a really interesting question, Alex. Um, I I think it's it's at its best. It's more a question about mutual support. Um, you know, particularly as we move forward into an era. Uh, where farmers will be encouraged to balance, <coughs> excuse me, but um, productive farming with biodiversity stewardship. I think there are lots of sound possibilities here. Um, I'll try and give some examples, both in the low ground and the, and the high ground. But for instance, we've been working with farmers in Central Fife for many years now on farmland bird recovery, um, particularly grey partridges, but also uh, yellow hammers, skylarks and corn buntings. And A key key finding from this work is that it's possible to establish uh, wild bird seed and cover crops on less productive areas of of farmland and that can provide the species uplift without necessarily affecting farming productivity. Um, So again that's just a simple area in where there's a crossover between our research around game birds, uh, yeah it was game birds originally, but um, the benefits for all birds really uh, where, where we can make the overlaps work um, so that's that's one possibility. I think also when we get those blocks of right, you know, the wild bird seed mix, um, pollinator type crops, um, we can create the the habitats for a mix of, of species, including invertebrates like pollinators. Um, I think that has important lessons for management around um, integrated pest management as well. So if we get those blocks right, and you've got some predator um, invertebrates. Um, Preying on aphids, you know, you've got a you've got a solution there as well. So I think there's there's interesting possibilities in that crossover combination between game management and and, and farming to to manage down carbon footprint, maintain productivity, and, and boost biodiversity. And it's it's pretty much the same in the uplands as well. Um, I mean, I'm conscious um, during uh, the research into uh, what's what's coming forward as the, the the grouse licensing bill at the moment. Um, SRUC and JHI, James Hutton Institute, um, did a lot of um, research work into alternatives in upland management. And they looked at um, renewable energy, wind farms, forestry, farming, uh, 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 and game management. And I think the broad conclusion was there wasn't really much significant alternative to what was already there. But what seemed to to strike me was that in combination they all worked reasonably well as a sort of integrated management approach, um, and I can see that continuing to be the case as as we as we wrestle with climate change. That we'll we'll need different sort of management approaches to to grapple with the problems, um, and I think that, you know, by that kind of integrated approach, you've also got the options to. Um, efficiently managed because obviously the, the resources for one can double up with with farming and livestock management. I mean, certainly in terms of the, the the grouse sector, the ability to use livestock to help with 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 grazing and also management of uh, of tick problems as well um, is becoming increasingly important as we're seeing you know, again climate change affecting the the uh, the um, the population tick out there I and mean, you know, again something we need to need to grasp again collectively so i think um it's, it's not about what farmers can do to help us or the game management sector i think it's what we can do all working together constructively but again i think i come back to the evidence that if we can uh, work constructively together on all of that then so much the better
0: and Ross, finally, are you optimistic about the future for the game bird sector in Scotland? What what do you see on the horizon and, and what's got you particularly excited?
1: Oh, well, um, I think across the sector, the, the possibilities for grafting um, public payments for, for for outcomes that we're seeing with the new agricultural bill proposals um, blending with possibilities around private finance um, I think will be important and I think we're going to see I think there's no doubt uh, we're not going to be seeing the same level of, of, of subsidy support under the single farm payment that we've been enjoying now as into the future and I think although that's concentrating on uh, uh, biodiversity benefits in future, uh, everyone's going to have to grasp the fact that we need to find ways to maybe diversify, to find new income streams, but also to reach out and understand what possibilities there are for deriving a little bit of income from from private investments, um, this whole burgeoning sector around um, natural capital finance, um, but I think we've got we've got a, a, a bit to go there because I think I think it's essential that there's overarching governance put in place to to control the regulation of investment in the land management sector. I mean I, you'll probably know as well as I do, we've seen these absurd asset bubbles developing in the price of of grazing land being bidded up by investors looking to plant trees. And you've got to wonder when the return on capital has become more important than the natural asset itself. So I think I think there's a bit of thinking to be done there um i think the other thing which concerns me is um we're less food sufficient than we were in the uk about 30 years ago so we can't lose sight of that um we need to be growing meat veg and fruit in scotland and building around that and local markets and supply chains and i think you know as far as you know we're concerned game meat has a part to play in that and i'd like to think that with care um, to ensure that shooting demonstrates its biodiversity credentials, um, it will remain important within rural community life. It's still got a part to play, but um, let's be under no illusion that the sector can't, can't be complacent at all. It needs to show that it's, it's, it's showing biodiversity benefit uh, and it needs to, 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 to produce the evidence to, to demonstrate that as well. So, you know, as I think we reflect at the beginning of this um this discussion, um being able to 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 show the evidence of good practice is becoming so important under the, the whole sort of umbrella of, of climate change and biodiversity loss. <laughs>
0: Ross, thanks very much for, for joining us um, for this episode of Thrill of the Hill. I'm conscious that this is a, a huge topic um, and uh, if you were open to it, I'd love to have you back on to discuss because I'm sure we've only really scraped the surface of, of what could be a really um, in-depth discussion. But um, on behalf of the Scottish Farm Advisory Service, thank you very much for joining us. I've thoroughly enjoyed it and uh, I hope the listeners have taken something from this.
1: No, thanks too, Alex. i be delighted to, to return to the, the conversation in the future. And I think, as I say, there's there's more that should unite us and divide us across the whole sector. And we keep hearing about rewilding and ecological restoration, but I think we're all working to the same end, really.
0: Brilliant. Thank you very much, Ross. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Thrill of the Hill. If you enjoyed listening, please like, subscribe and follow this podcast. Leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can find all our details at the bottom of our show notes below. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.